seated. And as you're being seated, you can turn to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. We uh, are actually moving close to the, toward the end of the book. Um, closer to the end than to the beginning, anyway. And we're certainly a whole lot closer to the end than we were back in January when we started all this. We are going through the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we are currently in the uh, considering the things that shall be. having technical difficulties. That is not a good sign. Behind the scenes, what does it really do? There we go. Hopefully it'll come up. Alright, we have the, uh, at the end of last week, this is another one of these testimony things, although I haven't got to go to Best Buy to get a new piece. At the end of last week, my USB port died on me. And so, Unfortunately, it didn't happen in the middle of the presentation. Then it would really been a bum deal. But it happened at the very end of the service when we were doing something else. And so, anyways, i got to go get another card that, that helps me to use my little clicker. So we have it on, on here. But we are in the book of Revelation, okay? And as we are in the book of Revelation, we are looking at the things that shall be. And we are moving uh, quickly now into the final uh, third um, part of the tribulations. And that is into the, the bowls of wrath. And I went back because I don't want you to, we're not going right to the bowls of wrath immediately, but as you can see throughout all the, the, the pictures that were there that, that, that have gone through and we've seen the, uh, the seal judgments, um, all seven of those, and then the seventh seal, opening of the seventh seal, brought us into the trumpet judgments. And then we went through the trumpet judgments and all the, the tribulation that was going to be upon the earth. And if you recall, when we went through those seal judgments, we went through the trumpet judgments, they, we talk about the fact that though we refer to them as judgments, they really weren't judgments, judgments. They weren't an overt pouring out of God's wrath upon the earth. Rather, it was really what? What were those judgments really? Go ahead, Christopher. That's exactly right. God just takes his hands off and says, you guys want to be God? You be God. See what it gets you. And we wound up killing ourselves. And so as we went through that, we saw the, the, the potential for um, the financial and economic er earthquakes, devastation that's going to occur, where it's going to be a quarter wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wage. I mean, so it's talking about poverty, because when we understand what the concept of poverty is, that people are going to be able to, they're going to work a whole day to afford two loaves of bread. A quarter wheat makes two, two loaves of bread. If you make your own bread, you'd understand that. Okay? And so basically, at that point, when, when that... When that economic trouble goes in the, um, oh, what's the word? I'm, I'm missing the word here. Inflation. When inflation happens, what, what happens when that, you know, because right now our dollar is continually becoming devalued, okay? But with the, the credit that we owe, with the debt that we owe, if, if the chips were called in, right now they would have to either, we'd have to go to war to fight those people who are saying we want, they want us to pay them, or we would have to create more money, and so all your money would be worth Nothing. Okay, exactly right. So now you you know a common a common laborer working at for seven dollars and twenty five cents I think is minimum wage now. So we calculated all that out. Seven dollars and twenty five cents times eight is about sixty dollars a day. Uh, something like that. Sixty eight fifty eight sixty dollars a day. So it would cost you thirty dollars a loaf of bread. Basically is what it's talking about at the, during those days. Okay, but those aren't God. God's not destroying our economy. 
that's saying, man, you want to do it? You do it. And so we did that starting back in the 1920s when we decided that we wanted to worship creation rather than the creator. When we decided that we believe in evolution and not in a creator God. And so God handed, began to hand us over at that point, Romans chapter 1. And so that was the Great Depression. That was the New Deal plan. That was the beginning of all the things that we see here in the United States. Now, it's not that prophecy is geared around the United States, but we see prophetically in the United States how all that comes about. So one generation later, we take prayer and Bible reading out of school because we've taught everybody that there is no God. There is no creator. One generation later is right now, and we see kids killing kids. We see abortion on demand. We see um, the states looking at bringing in euthanasia, which is the killing of um, older adults because they're not worth anything to us anymore. It's an amazing thing as we begin to see, and we begin to see our nation uh, teetering on the brink of um, financial ruin as well. And so all that, we can see prophetically how that could be there. You know, for years people look at these things and they try to spiritualize them because they think, how could these things be? Well, you know what? I look at those things and I say, you know what? We're less than a decade from it. It's an amazing thing. So, so those are, those are the, um, now I'm not saying we are literally less than a decade. I just mean that we we're there. We could be there very clearly. Um, and we could be less than a year from it. We could be less than a month, depending on how the, everything happens. So, so then we saw the Trump adjustments the same way. The nuclear holocaust that's going to occur, and that all makes sense. That when, when things start to happen, when those economic uh, ruffles start to happen, people start to fight, right? And we're going to talk a little bit about that th- this morning when it comes to the Euphrates River. It's an amazing thing, you know, what causes international conflict. And so when an international conflict begins, what begins to continue to happen after that? Escalation, right? You know, because I want to what? When? I've got four boys. Testosterone level can really increase. And I try to tell them, you've got to stop before you start. Because once it's started, boys want to... We want to win. <laughs> so... So, so if the war is going to escalate unless somebody says what? Ah, forget it. It's not worth it. But as a whole, boys want to win. Okay? And so boys will continue to win. And so we can see how nuclear holocaust comes. That took us then from the, into the seventh trumpet. And we saw then in Revelation chapter 10 that when the seventh angel was about to sound, it says that the mystery of God would be complete. I stated that that's my opinion of where the rapture will occur. That is the mystery of God. The church is the mystery of God. Um, and I try to show that biblically, where I, why I believe that's the case. And from the book of Daniel, that the church is not there for the, the 70th week of Daniel. Because that is for, for the Jews. That begins in Revelation chapter 11. And then we saw at the literally sound of the, the trumpet when it comes out. So for three and a half years on earth, the angel was blowing through the trumpet. And the sound actually came out in the middle of Revelation chapter 11, which was three and a half years later, that was when the witnesses were on the earth, and we get into the second half of the final week of Daniel's vision, the 70th week, and that is then when the, um, the beast, um, the dragon comes um, as well, and the dragon gives its power to the beast, and we see the beast coming into the earth, and the beast um, has another beast that arises, which we call the false prophet. The false prophet wants to cause everybody to worship the first beast, 
That's where the mark of the beast comes along and the number of the beast that everybody's worrying about. And we shared at that point, we don't have to worry about it. I mean, everybody's always worried about the mark of the beast, and I don't want to receive the mark of the beast, but the mark of the beast isn't going to happen until the second half of the tribulation. And we know from the book, of, from chapter 11, that there's going to be a temple in Jerusalem. Anybody see a temple in Jerusalem? It's not there. So, therefore, everybody's always worried about, is it the social security number? Is it this? Is it that? The reality is, I'm not worrying about it. Okay? Two reasons. A, I don't believe it's timing for it. B, I've already been marked. I've already been sealed. And that's what we saw when we went on into the 144,000, that they didn't receive the mark of the beast. Rather, they already had received the mark, and that's who, whose mark did they have? The mark of the Lord. Okay? They had the name of the Father stamped upon their forehead. And so if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have the mark of the Father, you have the name of the Father stamped upon your forehead. Though I may not see it, and you may not see it, you know, we talked about wishing we had one of those spiritual Geiger counter type things that we could know where people really are, you know, all of a sudden you shine the, the infrared light on their head or whatever, and it says, of the Lord, you know, and we go, oh wow, you're really a believer, you know, and, or you shine on somebody's head and it's not there, we go, whoa, you're fake, you know. We don't know that. So today, we move into the, that third part, and that is the pouring out of the bowls of, of God's wrath. Um, this actually happens very quickly compared to the, to the, the seals and to the, the trumpets. Um, we see all this occur, and we're going to go through two chapters here today, chapter 15 and chapter 16, in all this, because of how quickly they move through. And I think this is important um, because, again, this is where God overtly pours out his wrath. And this is the actual, the judgment when it comes to that. And I think it's because, from my perspective, is like, it's not God's desire. What's God's desire? That for all men to be saved. Yeah, that's what God's desire is. God's, this isn't God's desire. It's like me with my kids. My desire isn't, I want to spank you. You know, I joke sometimes with, with Andrew, um, you know, when we get up in the morning, I said, buddy, I haven't got to spank anybody for a long time. Do you, you, can, can you come into my room so, so I can spank you today? And he just kind of looks at me like, oh, dad. I said, no, man, I mean, come on. You know, I, this is fun. It's fun to spank somebody, isn't it? You know? And, and the reality is, as parents, we say what? It's not fun. It's not fun. We don't want to spank our kids. And a lot of times, it's the last resort. And sometimes that's a bad thing because we wait for it to be the last resort and we do it in anger rather doing an injustice. But God is not a man. And so he doesn't struggle with that. His is judicial. And yet he waits for the last point. He's wanting all men to be saved. We saw last week how he sends the angel with the, the everlasting gospel. And he calls all men to repent. But men still won't. And so here he begins to, to pour out judgment. And it's amazing what we're going to find out is that men still don't change their heart. So in this distribution of the bulls, we want to begin in chapter 15. Since we haven't read that earlier, we're going to read that together now. Okay, beginning at chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Same word as we saw in chapter 10 about the mystery of God being complete. This is the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses and the servant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. 
Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So in this, this setting, if you would, it's this introduction to the pouring out of the, the plagues, we see the distribution of the bulls that happen. And in this distribution of the bulls, we see three things. First of all, we see the wrath of God. The wrath of God is being portrayed as these bulls of blood, if you would. These bulls of um, wine that are going to be poured out. So it's the bulls of God's wrath that are, that are going to be poured out. And so in this wrath, um, again, as we talked about a little bit earlier, this is the overt pouring out of God's wrath. This is wrath, though, that is based upon justice, not based upon selfishness. When we consider the term wrath, we consider it as a, a very negative term, a very negative attribute. And the reason we consider it as a negative attribute is we can see it from the perspective of man. And so when we say, we talk about the wrath of somebody, you know, I think as a, as a Trekkie, um, I think of the, the Star Trek movie, The Wrath of Khan. There you go. So, so many of you know, okay? And when we think of the wrath of Khan, who was Ricardo Martimbon. Anyways, and we, we, think of, we think of Khan and his wrath. Was it a very judicial display? No, rather it was, it was uncontrolled, and it was, it was very self-centered, it was very egotistical, it was very um, demonic, really. And I think that the, um, Hollywood, not necessarily Hollywood by itself, but Satan, we know it's a spiritual war, and he uses the, 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 the platforms of entertainment and such to be able to teach us, to be able to influence us. And so... We have been influenced over the years to think of the term of wrath as a very what? Say again? Negative, Negative selfish thing. But that's not how it is when we talk about God. Rather, when it comes to God, it is a very judicial term. It is a very harsh term. Wrath is harsh. But it is not harsh from the perspective of that it is undeserved but rather it is judicial. And that God does everything that he can beforehand to call people to repentance, to call people back into a fellowship before he has to lower the boom, if you would. No longer are we talking about discipline, but now we're talking about the fullness of justice. Does anybody know the difference between discipline and justice? What's discipline? Right, you say to bring about change, but really, that's a derivative of it. Really, discipline is just teaching, period. The word disciple is actually from the same root as discipline. And so, a discipline is a teaching. It's an, it's a, it's a, it's an understanding. And so, 
disciples are disciplined in the disciplines of their mentor. Do you get that? Disciples are disciplined, trained, in the disciplines, the teachings, of their mentor. Okay? Of their teacher. That's exactly right. So without using the word teaching, we, we did. We, we're all over the word teaching there. But we're using the word discipline. So when I discipline my kids, we, today, when we use that word, we think spanking. You disciplined. Well, that means they were grounded or they were spanked. No. According to the word of God, discipline is both nurturing and admonition. You discipline them. You positively train them, nurture them, teach them. But then there's the negative side of the training of the discipline as well, and that is the admonishment, which incurs then the, the spankings and the, the timeouts and the, the verbal um, admonitions and stuff like that as well. Wrath, then, is on that negative extreme of this whole concept. But the goal of wrath is really, is not training at that point. This is not discipline. At this point, this is the fullness of justice. This is, I'm sending you to jail. Now, I hope in our, in our day and age, where we have the opportunity for people to be in prison and to come out and the change that we use the concept, though, of discipline there, that we are using prison as discipline. But the reality is, let's say, if I, if I, um, you're here for murder, and the jury sentences you to death. That's wrath at that point. That's the fullness of it, because um, you have a very short time to have a change of heart. It's not going to change, commute the sentence. You're still going to receive the same sentence. Um, and so you have whatever, 24 hours, three weeks, whatever the period of time is between the, the time that the, the sentence came down and the fulfillment of the sentence. And so God's wrath is completed at this point. It is going to be fulfilled. Now, what does that mean, that it's completed? Well, again, it's the same term that is used of the church. Okay, The mystery of the church, the mystery of God is completed. It's fulfilled. It's done. At this point, after God pours out his wrath upon man, it's done. It's over with. I spank my boys or my kids, if necessary, right? And then I continue to, to, to hold it over their heads the rest of their lives. Now, in my sinfulness, sometimes that happens. I try not to. But the, the goal of the discipline process is what? It's judicial. You earned it. You know what the consequences are for the decision you made. And so therefore, we, we go to this judicial situation. We handle the, the sentence, if you would. And then when it's over with, it's what? It's over with. It's done. That's right. It's completed. And then we move on from there. So here, the wrath of God. In these pouring out of the bowls of wrath, God's wrath will be completed. It will be finalized. It will, be, it will be done. And so in this as well then, we see the couriers of God's wrath. They're going to be the angels. Where do the angels come from? They come from the throne. They come from God's presence. And so they are ones who we see to be set aside. And it's kind of interesting that they come and um, they are given these bulls by the... Um, one of the four living creatures. So apparently these bulls of wrath 
are sitting aside waiting for the moment to be used. Does that make sense? And then these angels come from God's presence and they're given to it. So those are the couriers, but then there's then the completion of God's wrath, which we've talked about, that'll be finalized at this point. Secondly, we see the saints of God. Now, I put the arrow there because in the picture it's kind of hard to see, but um, we're told in the description that the saints, of, the saints will be there as well, singing a new song. This song is a song of Moses as well, but it's still a song of praise to God. And the saints will be there, um, in a sense, having a box seat, if you would, watching the fulfillment of God's wrath being poured out. This is a hard, for me, a hard part of the, the whole understanding of it. Because this is kind of the fulfillment of some of those Davidic Psalms where David is calling for God's retribution upon his enemies. And as a believer, I follow the teachings of my, my mentor, who is Jesus, right? And Jesus told me to, not only to love God with my, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, not only to love my neighbor as myself, but to love my enemies and to pray for those who despitefully use me. And so, yet there is this other side of it, and that is that in the flesh, even in the spirit, I understand that there are those who what? Who are seeking to persecute me. Who are seeking to, to bludgeon me if you would, both physically and spiritually. And it's a spiritual war. And there is a part in me that yearns for vindication. Is that true? Isn't that why Paul says that don't seek vindication, don't seek vengeance on your own, but rather, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And so, on this earth, my demeanor needs to be loved toward those who are despitefully using me, hoping that by, by some stroke of God's grace and of his miracle that these enemies of mine will what? They'll repent. They'll turn. They'll turn to God. They'll repent. And they'll become a believer. Over in India, there is a, um, there is a man who is a preacher who has only one arm. He went to a village as an evangelist. He's an Indian, so he's evangelizing his own people. And he opened up um, a church behind his market shop. So he began to sell the fruits and stuff in the market. And, and he began to witness the people, and they began to be saved, and they would meet in this little meeting hut. One day, a couple thugs came in who were hired by the local shaman, the, the, um, who didn't want them any longer in the village and they tied him to the post and they cut off his arm and they left him there to bleed to death soon after it happened his wife came in and found him stuffed it they got him you know did it, got him to the medical and they were able to to cauterize it and you medical people would know that better than I do anyway stopped the bleeding saved his life now, if you were that guy, what would you do? Figure God's closing doors, find someplace else to minister. Not him. He went right back. Understood the spiritual war. He prayed for those who despitefully used him. And the guy that cut off his arm got saved. 
and now it's one of the deacons in the church. Now, wouldn't that be an incredible thing, huh? He said, how did you lose your arm? My deacon cut it off. <laughs> Anyways, what an incredible story. But it's true. And so, though on the earth, there is times when I am going to be abused, and I look forward to God standing on my side, the reality is, I still want to emulate the love of Christ. But to those who will not respond, to those who will not repent, one day, God will be the judge who is on my side. And we see the saints here, who are declaring God's praise at this event. That's a hard thing for me to understand. One day I'll be there, and maybe I'll understand it better. The glory of God. And that's at the top of the picture. You can see the glory of God and God's presence. It's hard to be seen. But we're told that when all this happened, and the, and the, the angels received the, the, the bulls, and the, the proclamations were going forth, what happened? What happened in the temple? In the tabernacle? Say again? It was filled with smoke from the glory of God. And, and no one could what? No one could enter it. This is really kind of cool. Let's go to Exodus chapter 40. Okay, you can put a marker there. We'll come back to Revelation. But in Exodus chapter 40, we're told about this, this presence of God as well. And in chapter 40, verses 34 and 35, we're told, The cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting, because the cloud rested above it. And, to the, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. It is so neat um, to me, because this picture, and there's two other references that we're not going to go through right now, but they'll, they'll come up and you have them on your sermon note sheets. Um, talking about God's presence coming down and filling that temple, such that, that Moses wasn't able to go into it. And there was a picture at this point of the pillar of fire at night and the pillar of cloud by day. Do you remember that? And so when the pillar would rise up and move, then the children of Israel would rise up and they would follow. And when the pillar would stop, then the children would stop. And then the, and the pillar would stay above the, the tabernacle all the time. That is referred to as the tabernacling glory of God. Okay, because the glory of the tabernacle and that it, it re resided with them. You've heard that called the Shekinah glory. Have anybody heard that before? The Shekinah glory? Okay. Hebraically, we would say that that, that is the Shekinah Chabod. The Shekinah Chabod. What's really neat about that is that in John chapter 1, we're told, and the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, while he was on the earth, was the Shachanah Kabod. So awesome. That picture in the wilderness of that, of that pillar was Jesus leading them the whole way through. And so here again, this, this, this cloud, this glory of God filling with, with a cloud, I, I, again, it's just his presence. It's who he is. It is so radiant. It is so awesome that to be in his presence is, is, is just phenomenal. You think of Moses up on the mountain, you know, and he couldn't bear. He couldn't, couldn't see it. 
Elijah. No man has seen God at any time. And yet God has allowed us the privilege of seeing a reflection, if you would, in Yeshua. And so we see the glory of God that comes. And so also you have 1 Kings 8 and Isaiah 6, where Isaiah sees God high and lifted up. And there as well, when the, when the glory of God comes in, we're talking about the walls even shaking and, and the pillars shaking as well. It's kind of a neat thing. But then we move into chapter 16 in the dispensing of the bulls. And so let's read Revelation 16 together before we get into these. In fact, we'll just read each one of them as we go. How's that? Okay. Revelation chapter 16. We're going to begin looking at that in verse 1 and 2. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the, from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bulls of the wrath of God on the earth. So the first went and poured out his bull upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. This foul and loathsome sores are two Greek words, kakos and poniros. Kakos means something that is bad or ugly. There is kalos and kakos. Kalos is good or pretty. Kakos is bad or ugly. Does that make sense? Poniros, though, is, is a synonym, and it means evil. Evil. Okay? It's an evil. So these are, it talks about these foul and loathsome. Really, I like to use the word bad and evil. I mean, these are just, they're words that would use to reference um, uh, the sores that you would have upon your body that would make you unclean. You would be kakos and, and poniros. And so these are, these are awful things. I, I, the, picture, the best picture I can come up with is thinking about Job. When, um, when Satan goes before God and he says, um, you know, God says, have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him. And he says, oh, it's only because you won't let me touch him. And he says, well, go ahead and touch him. You just can't what? Kill him. Kill him. You know, and you can't touch him. And so he, he kills his kids. He uh, kills all of his herds and everything, right? And so he comes back and God says, well, I have seen Job. You know, he's still worshiping me even though you took everything from him. And he says, because you won't let me touch him. Skin for skin. He says, go ahead, you can touch him, you just can't kill him. And so what happens to Job? He gets all these boils, we read back there, but there's the same idea, these sores that he's scraping with the, the, um, with, the, with the shard, that's right, with the pot shard. And so the same thing happens to these people here, that they're going to get these, these sores upon them, and we're going to read later on that these sores are still there, even later on in these bowls, okay? So this is a three and a half year period that's going on. I don't know how long these sores are going to last, but potentially these sores are not something that's lasting a week and going away. All of a sudden these sores come and they're lasting a long time. Now I don't know um, about all the medical stuff. Um, Greg, I kind of put this to you and I, I didn't really research any of this, but in the, in the nuclear side of things, when, when somebody gets some hot radiation on them, do they get burns? Yeah, severe burns? Severe burns, which turn into pretty bad sores, yes? How long do they usually last? Months. Good, could be permanent, depending on how deep it, it burns in. Now, I, again, I'm not saying that this is radiation burns, okay? But again, there is something that we can picture right off the bat, okay, that could bring sores to these people. Now, is God going to bring a sore by itself apart from something that's natural? I don't know. Um, in Egypt, 
these, these plagues remind me of the plagues in Egypt. And so in Egypt, was there anything natural that necessarily came and caused these things? The answer is no. But they were all natural plagues, weren't they? They were. And so when the lice came, they were natural lice. When the, when the frogs came, they were real frogs. They weren't, in other words, they weren't synthetic frogs, you know. They, they were real frogs that were on land. When hail came, it wasn't just a, uh, um, a virtual storm. It was a real storm. There were real hail. And when locusts came and ate up the, what was left, they were real locusts. So I don't know whether all of a sudden these things are just going to pop out, whether this is going to be a disease. Uh, for example, like we have swine flu that pops up this year, right? And everybody starts to try to determine where swine flu originated. And so we, tried, we decided that swine flu originated where? Anybody know? Mexico. I've heard some people say that. You know, people, people for years have been trying to debate where AIDS started. You know? And uh, it's amazing things to me where some of these things start. I think a lot of this, these um, things, this is Bob's interpretation, I think a lot of these things start in our own labs in the hospitals where we are um, caught, we're, we're making these new strains of things and, and we let them out. I won't tell you about how MCG labs are um, retaining those spores. It's just amazing. I know someone down there who, who works in that, and they've told me how you know, they don't have closed cabinets. It's amazing to me. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, that's just nuts. And oh, no, 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 it's very technical and very scientific. And I think, yeah, and all your, you have a total electrical failure. You know, all this. Anyways, we won't go there. I don't want to scare you. It's just, it's, a, it's nuts, those kind of stuff. I, you know, the Lord allowed me to have some of this knowledge to come in, and I can just see all this stuff happening, and we're going to do it to ourselves, even though this is overt. So God, God pours out these sores upon these people, and they're just going to be miserable. They're going to be miserable, okay? Number two, the, the second one is, in verse three, it says, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Now, I think it's interesting. Do you remember back in Egypt when... The, um, the Nile became blood, and all the water became blood. Have you ever read any of the commentaries about that, about what this plague really was? What do, what do liberals say? The ones who don't believe in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Like an algae bloom? An algae bloom? Like a red algae? Or it could, some say it was just, you living in Georgia, you'll understand this. It was just muddy water. I mean, you know, after a good storm, if you went up to the lake right now, it wouldn't be clear, right? It would be what? Brown. It would be brownish, in, depending on which part of the... You're in, it could be reddish brown, okay, because of the Georgia clay. You have that kind of orangish kind of look to it, okay? And so some people say, oh, that's what it is. You know, I think God can make something... If he could turn water into wine, he certainly can turn water into blood. Do you realize that... Your blood is basically water anyway. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's got other things in it, but as a whole, you know, you're, you're primarily water anyway. And, and God created you, so I think he could turn water into blood. I think this is blood. I think that he turns the sea into blood. And what do we read when, when the seas turn into blood? What happens? Everything dies. Yeah, so you've got this, this curse that's going to come, and then you have this result, and the result is that Everything dies. Now this is important because back in the um, in the other jump, the, the the judgments in the trumpet judgments, we saw that um, the great mountain that was going to be cast into the sea, 
And when it was cast into the sea, a third of the creatures died, and a third of the navies of the earth were destroyed as well. And so there were still two-thirds of the, um, the, the animal life that was in the seas that, that survived. At this point, even nature is filling the judgment of man's sin. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that, that creation itself groans, waiting for the deliverance. Isn't that interesting? Creation itself groans, waiting for deliverance. Because it is nature, or creation, if you would, it bears with the consequences of our sins. When God created Adam and created Eve, he told man that he was supposed to have responsibility, dominion, over, over creation. And so when we blew it, we blew it for all those who were under our dominion. Dads, that's a good picture for me of my responsibility in my home. When I blow it in my dominion, in my little house, it has an effect upon everybody that's in my domain. Does that make sense? Well, here we see the film fulfillment, the film fullness, if you would, of that happening. The, the seas are going to turn into blood, and all the living creatures will die. And then we go into then the third bowl, in verses 4 to 7, it says, And the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the water saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. For it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. In the second bowl, the, sea, the salt waters, if you would, were turned to blood. In this judgment, the fresh waters are turned into blood. Now, what's the difference between this one and the previous one? Fresh waters with humans drink. That's exactly right. God is escalating, if you would, the, the punishment. Man does not respond. And so in the midst of this, as, as God gives them blood to drink, again, his praises and his justice is being declared in the heavens, even though it may not be declared on the earth. And then we have the fourth bull of God's wrath. In verse 8 and 9, it says, Then the fourth angel poured out his bull on the sun, and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. Okay? So, what's the curse? Global warming! Yeah, that's what I got down to. This is awesome, isn't it? The, the fulfillment of global warming! You know? And the, yeah, it's exactly right. But this is really global warming. This is in the oven. This is not in the warming tray down below. This is in the oven with the broiler on. And the sun is going to scorch people. Now again, I, I like to think of some of these things naturalistically, if you would, of God using um, the laws of nature and using and doing some of these things. I don't think that that diminishes the, the miraculous nature of any of these as, as well. But um, I got to teach for a part of a year once physical science at a school. And 
Anyways, and so I learned a lot about physical science as I was teaching it, you know, because I had to go out and study it, and, you know, so when I taught it, I semi-understood it, and, and it's amazing the, the different things that are in the air that, you know, like the ozone that's in the air, how much we need ozone, what it does, um, uh, carbon dioxide, the importance of carbon dioxide in the air. And so the different things that God placed in our atmosphere to protect us from the radiation of the sun as well as the heat of the sun, as well, though, to retain heat from the sun. So to protect us from the heat of the sun, but also to retain heat from the sun, so that neither we are scorching nor are we freezing. It's a delicate balance that's there. And, you know, and so when I, I listen to all the, the tree huggers, um, you know, I, 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 I laugh with the extent that they go to, but the, the reality is, the other side is, that there is an importance to what some of the environmentalists say. Because we do have dominion, and we do use it, at times, erroneously. And I wonder if some of these things, again, are natural effects that God is using in his pouring out of his wrath upon us. Now, whether it is, or it isn't, whether it's a miraculous thing where God just turns up the, the heat of the sun, if you would, for the moment, the fact is, that at this point there is going to be this scorching heat that's going to be devastating to people. There's not going to be any escaping it. And what's the response? What's the, what what happens as a result of this of this plague of this of this curse? That's exactly right. Men will not repent, yet they will curse God. Which is interesting to me. Because in this gnashing of teeth, in this cursing of God, and blaspheming his, his name, it lets you know that they understand what? That he exists. And what else? He's the source of the pain. Which means that they, they understand that he's the creator. And I said this this morning in Sunday school about atheists. I don't believe there's really very many atheists or true atheists. That an atheist is an atheist because he's decided to be an atheist. Because he knows there's a God. He suppressed the truth. And he doesn't want to believe in a God. So he chose not to believe in a God. Not because he just was innately didn't, doesn't think there's a God. There are those who are agnostic. I believe that they may be truly agnostic. They are without knowledge. They don't understand because they're being influenced by someone who is an atheist. Who has chosen to go that route. But someone, I don't believe that, you know, for example, the Carl Sagan's and the, the Richard Dawkins and, and all these other guys, the Stephen Hawking's, they're not really, they, they say, that really, there is no God. They have determined that there is no God. They've chosen to have the, that there is no God. And so by that statement of being atheistic, they know that there is a God. And that they've chosen to re rebel against him. I hope that makes sense. That's philosophical and logical. But, but it's, it's out there. And, and it's borne out in human beings all the time when things happen. Who do they always want to blame? God. Jesus. I mean, think about it. They use his name in vain all the time. They want to blame God. That's exactly right. And I think they understand that Jesus is God. I think they understand about the resurrection. We just try to ignore it. And I remember Jerry Smith, and I share this a lot, but Jerry Smith years ago at the, the men's breakfast who says, you know, a fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But so if it's a fool who says in his heart, there is no God, how much greater a fool, though, is it, who knows that there is a God, and then acts says, there isn't one. That's us. 
So we acknowledge that there's a God, we say there's a God, but then we act like the world sometimes. At least they can say with their mouth they don't believe that there's a God. And they're not hypocritical. So what about us? So this scorching sun's going to come upon them, and yet they're not going to repent. They're going to lift their hands. See how the guy's got his fist clenched up there. They're gnashing their teeth at God and, 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 and uh, blaspheming his name. Number five, the fifth of the plagues is in chapter, uh, chapter 16, beginning of verse 10, where we read, Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and did not repent of their deeds. And so what happens here? What's the curse here? Well, it's darkness, just like it was in Egypt. And you have the reference for that, that plague on your sermon note sheets. We're not going to go there now for, for the sake of time. But that darkness was utter darkness back then. They couldn't see their neighbors. It was pitch black. Some have debated whether it was really a, the, the plague was blindness. You know, that there was, they were totally blinded. And that was the darkness that they had. I, I'm not sure, again, how God did it. I think it was dark. I think it was black. I think that, that God removed all light. All light. Um, if you've ever gone to um, Canada um, with me, um, we, when we go up to the, the upriver, there are no lights, and it's dark. The only light we have is starlight and moonlight. It's amazing how light it is when the moon is there, and when the stars are reflecting the sun's, or when the moon is reflecting the sun's light and the stars are star's light is shining. But um, were you over there, Greg, when we went up to the railroad tracks? And we kind of hung out in the railroad track and did, did the, the communion up there in, in the train station? Okay. And uh, I remember being up on the train tracks, though, on a, on a night when the moon wasn't shining and there was cloud cover. And I remember thinking about how dark it was. How dark. And we needed the flashlights and lanterns, you know, to kind of see our way. It wasn't, you know, a lot of times you can walk some of the paths because you kind of know where the path's at and there's enough light from the moon that you can see it. But how dark it really is when there is no light. And so picture it where there is no light, no reflective sunlight at all, no reflective starlight at all. Your eyes dilate and dilate and dilate. But why do your eyes dilate? To bring in more light. That's exactly, it's, it's kind of like when you're doing a camera. You know, you're opening up the aperture. You want to bring in more light. Well, there's no light there to bring in. What's it like? It's like Gollum. You know, coming out of the thing, his eyes are all buggy and stuff like that. And that's what we are. And it says that they, they, again, they were gnashing at the teeth. Because think about it now. What does it say that the effects are still there from? The sores. Remember I said about the sores? Remember the sores? The sores are still there. And they're still... Think about what it would have been like to have those sores when the sun was scorching and you were sweating. Stunk and stung and... Ah! Oh, and now all of a sudden you're in darkness. And so no one can minister to you because they can't find you. They can't see you. And you're talking. I think this is almost a, 
a living picture of hell. The worm dies not. The fire is unquenchable. 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 And it's utterly dark where you can't see anybody else. Is it cold now? I don't know. That's a good question. We're not told it's cold now. But you know, in hell, if there's going to be that fire, which means it's hot, but it's going to be utterly dark. So I don't know. I don't know. Their bodies may still be burning <laughs> from, from what was going on before. But that's a good question. I never thought about that before, Don. Is it cold now? Because without the sun, without any reflective light, it would be cold. So I, I, I don't know. That's something to ponder. Something to think about. All I know is that, again, it is what? Very devastating. And again, the people don't repent rather than they what? They curse his name. And again, every time I, I'm coming through this, okay, and it's easy for us to pick on unbelievers and say, well, I'm sure glad I'm not going to be there. But you know, Hebrews chapter 12 says that God loves me like a father loves his son. And whom he loves, he chastens, he corrects. He uses the rod on. And it says that if you are in sin and God is not chastening you, then you are a illegitimate child. You're not his. You may claim to be his, but you're not his. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so if you're walking in sin, God ultimately has to what? He has to deal with it. Now, for those who aren't his, one day he's going to have to deal with it in wrath, in utter justice. But if you're my child, think about it, and you act up, what am I going to do? I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to talk to you. But if you're not my child, I mean, the Connor kids can, can, can do whatever they want to on the, on the back row. Does that make sense? And they're not going to deal with Pastor Bob later on. Pastor Bob's not going to do one of these things to him. But if somebody on the front row or so starts to do something, I get distracted. It's amazing how many people say, oh, you know, about what happened during service. I mean, I don't reckon, people can get up, they can move, they can go, as small as it is, you'd think I'd notice everything. I don't notice anything. But something happens over here, I know it in a heartbeat. And they know it. If they get the eye, if they get the click, they know that dad has taken notice. And dad loves me. They may not be thinking about it that way. But, and because dad loves me, he's going to what? He, he, we're going to deal with this later. We're going to talk about this later, you know, in some manner or form. Anyways, so, so God's the same way. So, again, you know, I want to caution myself as I come through this, and I look at all these things, and I go, oh, man, I'm just glad I'm not there. No, listen, this is a reminder of what God thinks about sin. A reminder of what God thinks about rebellion. How much he values holiness and righteousness and submission to his truth. We move into the sixth plague, and we've got a little bit more in the sixth plague than we have in the other ones. But in the sixth plague, we see two things that are going to happen. First of all, the Euphrates River is going to be dried up. Now, i got pictures here of the Euphrates River, and it is amazing, um, you know, as I said, as we're going through the book of Revelation, how much I have learned. I mean, I have, I have studied um, nuclear weaponry, I mean, and uh, things that I've never known before, of high-altitude um, high altitude explosions and, and, and all this magnetic radiation stuff that's going on. And I mean, just all these things that I've studied 
I've come through here. Now, I, I mean, I've studied now all about this gap thing that, they, that they're doing over in uh, Syria and, and Iraq and Turkey in the, in the um, how they're seeking to dam up the Tigris River now. But the debate, the political uh, frustrations that are over now, the, the damming up of the Euphrates River and the, the political un- instability that there is. Um, I almost wish that Sean was here today because I know Sean kind of deals with some of that stuff over there at, at, the, at the fort. And, uh, but anyways, how much of the political inst- instability is going on right now um, with Iraq and Syria and Turkey? And it's not over politics. It's not over religion. It's over water. The Euphrates River. See the picture down in the bottom right? That's a picture of the Euphrates River. The, they have had drought over the last couple of years. Kind of like ours. We, we, we don't think about every, other people around the world having drought. They've had drought. And there are areas of the Euphrates River that is totally dried out. It's still, it's, it's trickling down to joining the Tigris. And so it's still joining. But areas which were flowing with, with water before are parched right now. There are um, farmers who are seeking to change their, their primary crop of this rice that I guess that has been a, a very um, valuable rice, a very sought after rice, but no, they no longer have the water to be able to produce it. So they're going to go to a lesser grade of rice because it doesn't require as much water. It's amazing. And so you think of all the, the struggling that's going on between Tennessee, is it Tennessee, no, Alabama, Georgia, Alabama, and Florida right now over the water usage, it's nothing compared to what's going on over there right now. It's amazing. And so you have this, um, I think it's called the Akhabar Dam um, here, that at any moment, they could dry up the Euphrates River like that. See the picture in the top left corner? See how much water's behind it? That's the top of the dam. <laughs> that's, Tur- that's Turkey's water. Down below the dam, that's Syria and Iraq's water. Hmm. You start to think about that. You say, oh, wait a second now. The power of a, of a dam. And so now, will it be that they shut it off? Again, this is a naturalistic thing. Or will it be that God t- totally dams up individually like he did for um, Israel when they crossed the Jordan River. Remember how there was an earthquake up in Ai, up in um, Eden, where it blocked up the Jordan River for a period of time, and so Israel could walk across the Jordan River on dry ground. Okay, So God can cause a natural dam if he chose to, and he dry up the Euphrates River. But it's, again, interesting how many things are out there that we have done to ourselves and are doing to ourselves that God can use um, to bring punishment upon us and to get us to, to be aware. So anyways, so we have this Euphrates River which is going to be dried up. And in the drying up of the Euphrates River, why does it dry up? What's the purpose of it? Prepare the ways of who? The kings from the east. The kings from the east. Now this is important because a lot of times people misunderstand all this. Okay, This is the kings of the east. The kings of the east are going to be coming over the Euphrates River. But then we read about these three evil spirits that go forth, like frogs, right? They come out, and they go to do what? What is the purpose of the, the, the king, of the, uh, the frogs? 
They go up to gather the kings of the of the world together. Where? To the Valley of Megiddo. To the to the to Armageddon. Armageddon. Okay. And Armageddon talks about the Valley of Megiddo. Now this is important because this is the only place you ever read about Armageddon in the Bible. The only place you ever read about the Valley of Megiddo in the Bible. Okay. Um, and so, or Mount Mount Megiddo. What it's referring to is this valley that I have circled right here. And if you can see it, it looks like an arrow head. Okay? Here's the, the Jordan River coming up here. And right through here, you can see the pass into the, um, into the, the valley. And then it kind of comes right here like this, and it comes to a point. So you have this arrow with kind of like a bent shaft a little bit. Can we see that? I know it's a distance away. But it's, it is an important valley. It is a, a huge battlefield um, that has been used. i got some pictures of it here that are, will come up as well that you can see. This is a view um, looking across toward um, Mount Tabor. Um, and so this is the valley down here. This is Mount Tabor. And we'll talk about Mount Tabor in a moment. That's where um, Barak and um, Deborah were. And, and, and their war. This is looking down. The, so this this one here, I should tell you, we're, we're, we're over here. We're actually at Nazareth. Up, uh, see, where are we at? Nazareth. Looking at Mount Tabor. So we're looking that way, okay, for this picture. This picture, we're standing right here, and we're looking down the line of Mount Geboa. Okay, Mount Geboa is important. We'll see that in a moment. That's where Saul and a lot of the Israelites died. That's also as well as where... Um, the 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 um, the well of Enged was was where um, Gideon went and had all of his um, his troops and down to 600. Okay, and then we have this picture here. This is from from Jezreel, looking um, in Megiddo, looking back down toward Mount Tabor and 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 coming this way down there as well. You can see how expansive the valley really is. When you look at a map, it doesn't look like a whole lot. But it's a huge valley. It is a valley that was carved out for warfare. And has been, has been the, the, the battleground, the, the stage of many, many wars throughout history. Um, you can see, if, if you remember, there's the ways it comes down is all mountains. They can't fight up in the mountains. And so they would come down and they would stage their battles there. And so this is Armageddon, and with all these mountains around, you can almost picture the blood, like a, in a bull, being poured, you know, filled up in, in, to the to the bridle. It's an amazing thing. And so we see in Judges chapter four, Deborah and Barak, and so they were stationed here at Mount Tabor, and the uh, the Midianites that they were fighting were down in the valley, and so um, he went down to fight them as well, and that's when the rain came and um, miraculously and and caused the their um, their chariots, the wheels to fall off, and all that kind of stuff, amazing stuff. And then in Judges 6 and 7, Gideon. Gideon um, was in, in Ophrah, and I don't think Ophrah is on here, um, when, when the angel came to see him. But he went out down into this area, to the springs. And that's where he had the, the thousands of troops and, and let them all go down to 600. And they went out and they fought the Midianites there as well. In 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 to 10, Samuel, is, or Saul, this is really interesting, is fighting the the Philistines at this point. Well, what's really interesting about this is the Philistines are down in this area 
Jerusalem's over here. But yet both groups do what? They go up to the battlefield. Okay? To fight. Second Chronicles 35, 20-22, we read about the death of Josiah. Because Necho, down in Egypt, down here, is going to fight the Babylonians, who were over here. But there's a big desert right here. And so you don't travel through the desert. So Egypt would have to come up this way, go through Assyria and Syria and Assyria, over toward um, Babylon. And they were going to actually meet up in Carchemish and, and fight up there. So at this point, Josiah has allied himself with Babylon. And so he understands that Necho, Necho Pharaoh of Egypt, is going to fight. And so he goes out in his alliance to fight against Necho. This is complete suicide. But he, he has a high mind and he thinks he's going to do it and God's going to bless him because he's going to do it. How many times do we do that, right? We, we, we don't ask God what he wants us to do. We say, here's what we're going to do. God bless me. Okay? And so he goes and he meets them. Where? In the Valley of Jezreel, the Valley of Megiddo. Okay? Armageddon. And, and Necho wipes him out and kills him. And they carry his body back to Jerusalem. So this has been a, a staging point of many battles. Okay, these are just four of those throughout history. Okay, and this is just the Old Testament biblical battles. Okay, not talking about even those that have come up into modern day. And so this is where Armageddon is going to be, and it's going to be a good battle there. And we're told that these evil spirits are going to go forth, these demonic spirits are going to go forth, and they're going to whisper in the ears of all the kings of the earth, and they're going to gather there. Now, if I say that, again, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does he mean by all? If the United States still exists at this point, if, there's an if there, will we be represented? Probably. I'm sure this will be, uh, if the United Nations is still a force, which I think it will be, I think some modification of the United Nations will still be there, we'll be a part of it, as we are right now. When we go out as a UN force, what do our troops wear? Do they wear the U.S. flag? Mm -hmm. They wear the U.N. patch. That's exactly right. We may go in with China. We may go in with China. No, they're the part of the kings of the east. They're coming in from the, from the east side. We may join them from the west. Huh? They own us. They own, they own us. We just don't know that. That's exactly right. That's exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. That's a scary thought, isn't it? We owe Russia. I always thought we owe Russia. What, how, how ridiculous. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean... We, we, we owe China, Russia, and Saudi Arabia, our three greatest debtors. How do you, you know, anyways, that's another, read Deuteronomy 28 to 31 and just see what God says about a nation that's cursed and a nation that's blessed. We are definitely not the head anymore, we are the tail. And we, we, we think we're it, we think we're the, you know, like Babylon the Great, we'll talk about that as we go. We, we think we're, we're high and lifted up, we, we think we're not, we're not a widow, we just don't understand how poor and rich we are. So, number seven, at the end, is the hail. The hail that comes down upon, upon men. And it was such, such great weight that it was devastating. You know, I, for years, I, I don't have understood this one. People talk about golf ball-sized hail and all this kind of stuff, and I think, you guys are nuts. You know, every time I've seen hail, it's what? Little bitty things like this, you know? Two years ago? A year and a half ago? Two years ago, we were coming back from Macon, and we drove through baseball to softball size 
hell. I was never so scared in my life. Well, I might have been scared in other places, but that was that was devastating to have somebody throwing ice balls that size at you. I mean, hurling them. You know, I mean, I kind of can picture, you know, when um, Joshua and the Israelites were fighting and, and all of a sudden the, the hail was falling on all the, the Canaanite tribes and men and, and they were killing and more, more men died from the, the hail than died from Israelites that day. Do you remember that story? And I can always, I always joked about the angels up there, you know, you know, got another one, got another one, you know, and they're, they're up there, you know, putting the clicks on there. Oh, you're nice now, you know, you know, and all this kind of stuff. It's the same picture that's going on here. And so no longer, I mean, I understand this. And it, I think, you know, if that is just a small storm that I drove through and it had hail that size, could you imagine when God purposefully, and I'm not saying he didn't purposely make the hail in that storm. That's for another debate. But when God is putting together hail as a judgment, I can't imagine the size of these things and being hit by them. Do you remember during the days of Egypt when the hailstorm was going to come? It was the only time when Moses by the grace of God and the mercy of God, warned the people to do what? Stay inside. And it was amazing. There were people, there were Egyptians in Pharaoh's court who passed on word to their families to do what? Stay inside. <laughs> even, though, even though the boss has lost his mind, I understand what? The God of the Hebrews is powerful. If he says it's coming... Get everybody inside. Get the, get the animals inside. Because what was going to happen? They were going to die. It's the same thing that's going to happen here. And again, we see what's the result. Verse 12 to 16 says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as a mighty and great earthquake had not been occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city was divided into three parts, and cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague that was exceedingly great. And so people did what? They blasphemed God. They still would not repent. Do you understand that... It says in hell that there will be the weeping and gnashing of teeth. What gnashing teeth means? What does that mean? What's grinding? It means that they're angry still, not repentant. Even when they get to the place of eternal condemnation, there is still not going to be submission to the plan and person of God. Rather, they're going to be gnashing teeth, full of anger toward him. The rebellion will be so great. So, looking at the devastation that's coming, the question is, have you been looking forward to the day of the Lord? You know, so many people say, well, I can't wait for, for Jesus' return. Do you understand that according to the book of Amos, it says, woe to you, those who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness 
and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, or as though he went into the house, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? And the fact is that the day of Yahweh, the day of his return, is not going to be a pleasant day. Now, for those of you who know him, it will be. Because we're told in the book of Thessalonians, it says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those in sleep sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the wrath is not for you. However, I don't know each of your hearts as well as you don't know mine. If you're not his, if you're playing a game, Jesus said these people worship me with their mouth, but their hearts are far from me. And those are Jews which seem to be very righteous and were devoting their, their life to God and, and going to the temple and wearing the, the clothes they were supposed to wear. And Jesus said it's their hearts aren't there. They have all the outward appearance. They, they look like it, but they're not. And that's where in John 15 he talks about, about the dried up branches that will be gathered up and thrown into the fire. Because he says that those who abide in him will bring forth fruit. And so if you're not in him, you won't bring forth fruit, but rather you'll be shriveled up. You'll, you may look like you're a branch. You may look like you're a part of the vine. But God knows you're not. And I ought to believe that ultimately you know you're not. And so if, if any of you today are in that, then I call to you. Today's the day of salvation. You don't need to look toward the wrath. Now for us though who believe, the fact is that that wrath is there. And as we talked about in Sunday school with the resurrection of the dead, if I know that wrath is coming and there's a potential for some of my loved ones, some of my neighbors, some of my workmates to be in that, what effect does that have upon me? If I really believe it and I have the love of God for others, then I should have a desire to do what? Reach out and see all men saved and come to the knowledge of truth but ultimately for me I praise God for the victory this is a, a reminder to me not that I want to look at and gloat over the people who are going to go through this but I praise God for the victory through my Lord Jesus Christ that he's given to me that he hasn't just taken his hand off and said no you deserve it because do I deserve it I do deserve it but rather he's provided a way that I don't have to go through that. And so through our God, we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our enemies. We will sing and shout the victory. Christ is king. With that in mind, let's turn to that, 729. It's a victory song. And let's sing.
through our God, we shall do valiantly.